0: This is the first of four tapes in a series titled Practicing the Precepts. Recorded September 26, 1999 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'm going to begin today a series of talks on our precepts. Uh, Hopefully I'll be able to do this in four separate sessions. And I plan to uh, try to do this on the last Sunday of every month that we're open. So if you are interested in following this particular little series and you want to make a point of showing up the last Sunday of the month that we're open, I will uh, probably be giving another talk, a continuing talk in this continuing series on uh, practicing moral precepts. Uh, In a previous talk called Why Morality Matters, in case you want to check it out, I gave an overview of how mystics see precepts, moral precepts, and morality in general, as opposed to other views of it. And so I'm not going to go into that again this morning at any length, but I do want to point out uh, two distinctions. There's a difference the way mystics view moral precepts, And first of all, the way what we might call exoteric religious believers view moral precepts, orthodox ordinary believers. And I think it's fair to say most orthodox ordinary believers practice moral precepts ultimately to avoid hell and to get into heaven. Or if you're in uh, in an Eastern tradition, it's to avoid a bad rebirth. It could be in a hell realm and uh, have a good rebirth. And so these are very concrete, practical reasons for practicing precepts, but that is not the reason mystics practice precepts. And then the other distinction we have to make is the difference between why mystics practice precepts and secular humanist practice precepts, uh, the secular argument for practicing precepts. And that argument is basically that if we all practice precepts, if we were all nice to each other, if none of us lied, none of us stole, none of us murdered, we'd have a more congenial society. And so we'd all be happier, which is true, probably. But that is not the reason mystics practice precepts. Mystics would practice precepts if they were on a desert island, completely removed from any society. If the whole society had already collapsed, if a a virus had been let loose and everybody was dead and they were left alone on the face of the earth, they would still continue to practice precepts. So it's not about getting into heaven and avoiding hell, and it's not about creating a better society. These things are goods in themselves, but that is not the fundamental reason. So we have to be clear about this in the beginning because sometimes, especially in our day, I think people confuse practicing moral precepts uh, as a spiritual practice with social ethics and uh, you can get into a lot of trouble with that. So then why do mystics practice precepts? Here's what uh, Longchenpa, Tibetan Buddhist, says. Morality purifies the habits of samsara and dispels the stains from the essential nature and causes enlightenment to be fully attained. So really this is a practice of self-purification and a practice that is related to the goal of enlightenment, realization, gnosis. It doesn't have anything to do with improving society directly or getting to heaven and hell. Getting to heaven and hell is not enlightenment. Particularly in the Eastern tradition, they're very clear about that. You go to heaven or you go to the hell realms, they believe in heaven and hell realms, and that's a result of your karma. And if you've built up good karma, you go to heaven, but it will run out eventually, and you keep going around in cyclic existence. So enlightenment is getting out of cyclic existence altogether. In the Western traditions, the Western mystics don't view getting to heaven as really the ultimate. It is to attain the vision of God. That is the ultimate release. So it's not just about enjoying the joys of paradise. And in the the Sufis, who are the mystics of Islam, recognize that in paradise there are tears and there's levels of enjoyment and so forth. But that's not what Sufis are after. Here's what uh, Al-Ghazali writes. He's a great Sufi. The aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of self-centered passion and resentment till like a clear mirror it reflects the light of God. So it's the same thing here. This is uh, a practice of self-purification designed to help us on the path to enlightenment, realization, or gnosis. Practicing precepts dismantles that self-centered conditioning which causes the illusion that we are separate individuals, entities, selves, which is the main obstacle to our realizing that we are not separate individual entities, ourselves, that we are that ultimate consciousness, that Godhead, that primordial awareness, Buddha mind, that Brahman, that al-haq, the truth, the reality, that is the foundational reality of all this cosmos that arises that we experience and see. So the essence of moral practice is instead of acting selfishly from our self-centered conditioning to get what we want and what we desire and so forth, to start acting selflessly so that we can discover Selfless love and compassion, which is inherent in that ultimate reality, which is our true nature already. It's just that it's blocked by these stains, as Longchenpa called them, or this rust, as Al-Ghazali called it. This is important to understand that selflessness and the motivation of selfless love and compassion is the essence of moral precepts. And in that sense, morality is absolute. It's rooted in the absolute. It's not just a relative thing from a mystic's point of view. Oh, well, that's your opinion of what's right and wrong, and this is my opinion, and so forth. From a mystic's point of view, Acting out of selfless love and compassion ultimately is what dispels our suffering. And suffering is bad, evil. That is the definition of bad and evil. And acting uh, selflessly also promotes happiness. And that is what is good. It's, It's quite clear cut here. But even though we can say morality is rooted in the absolute, it's not just some relative human invention, it reflects a cosmic law, the particular individual precepts themselves are relative and they are flexible. And so here mystics again differ sometimes with uh, exoteric fundamentalist believers. And the reason is because what is selfish in one situation is not necessarily selfish in another situation. So one example is stealing. Most of the time, people steal for selfish reasons, (coughs) self-centered reasons. But we can think of situations where we can see that stealing might be selfless. If you were stealing food to feed a starving child, especially if you knew you were going to suffer the consequences of it, that would be selfless action. It may be illegal, but it would be morally right. So these precepts are designed to guide us in everyday situations in which usually we are tempted to act selfishly from our self-centered condition. But we must remember that they are not rigid and we must be guided by that ultimate principle of selfless love and compassion. So we must obey Jesus' words here, or his advice. He said, it's the spirit of the law that counts, not the letter of the law. And that's what he's talking about. Selfless love and compassion will always override the letter of the law. So watch this in your practice if you're practicing precepts. And always keep that in mind. This creates problems sometimes. It's not always uh, easy to know what is the selfless thing to do, what is the selfish thing to do. And our motives are often very mixed and we have to sort all this out. And so this is part of our practice. It's not just you know written there in stone. We have to actually practice and grapple with this stuff. And that is one of the major purposes of the precepts to make us look at our motivation and sort it out and grapple with it. Having given that little preface, the precepts in general, let me uh, read you here these 10 precepts that we've adopted for our practitioners group here at the center. Uh, some of you are starting the foundation studies group So you're going to be starting to practice these precepts in a group situation and talk about them and so forth Some of you have been practicing these for a long time So <coughs> this will serve as a refresher a reminder. We can always use reminders about precepts And perhaps some of you this will be somewhat new a new way of looking at precepts And I I hope at least that will give you food for thought We begin with a little vow It says, I vow to practice these 10 selfless precepts. One, responsibility. To take responsibility for my life, not to blame others for my own unhappiness, nor make excuses for my own mistakes. Two, self-discipline. To regard each moment as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice, not to waste time in frivolous pursuits, Nor overindulge in drugs, alcohol, or escapist entertainments. 3. Harmlessness. Not to injure or kill any being heedlessly or needlessly. 4. Stewardship. Not to waste the resources upon which other beings depend. 5. Honesty. Not to deceive myself or others by word or deed. 6. Integrity, not to take what does not belong to me. 7. Honor, to regard my word as sacred, not to give it lightly, but once given, strive to honor it under all circumstances. 8. Sexual restraint, to make of sex a sacrament, not to profane it in the pursuit of selfish ends. 9. Charity, Not to be possessive of people or things, but to give unsparingly of my assets, both material and spiritual, for the alleviation of suffering. Ten, remembrance. To recite these precepts once a day, renewing my vows and remembering this path which I have freely chosen. So these precepts are basically a restatement of the precepts you'll find in all mystical traditions. Uh, There really isn't anything new here. There are two of the precepts that are are somewhat novel. The first one is stewardship, and this reflects our modern understanding of ecology and the fact that all biological beings share uh, the same environment and we're all dependent on it. So that comes to the fore here as a way to practice selflessness and mindfulness. And then sexual restraint. Our precept is a lot more flexible than you'll find in other traditions. And this, again, reflects modern historical circumstances, which I won't get into a long thing about. I think I talked about this in my other talk, Why Morality Matters. But basically, the two most important things is the advent of modern birth control, and a lot of the, uh, the strictness of traditional precepts surrounding sex has to do with regard for children to make sure that children are born in circumstances where they can be brought up properly and so forth. And sex was basically equated with having children. If you have sex long enough, you're going to start having children. And second, the economic independence of women. And both of these things have been brought about by the Industrial Revolution, which is uh, quite modern in the last 300 years or so. So the situation has changed quite a bit in terms of our sexuality. So we adopt a more flexible precept. And as well, when we get to that point in this series of talks, we'll be talking more about both those two precepts and what they might mean. Practicing precepts, all the precepts, requires the application of four basic principles. These principles will apply to any spiritual practice, so I just want to mention them briefly and get some idea of how they work in your practicing precepts. The four principles are attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And as I said, they comply to meditation, they apply to any kind of spiritual practice you do. When you're working with precepts, The first thing that precepts do is call attention to typical situations that come up in our everyday lives where we are apt to be acting out of our self-centered conditioning. And when you really resolve to take these precepts seriously, uh, that's the first thing that happens. You start to notice situations in your life where you are violating your precepts. And a lot of people are surprised at how much they do, just in little ways. I hope nobody here is a professional thief or a mass murderer or something. <laughs> but again, the importance of these precepts is in the, the details of our behavior. It has nothing to do with the effect it has on society. We're practicing these precepts in a certain sense, at least in the beginning, selfishly for ourselves, for our own benefit. This is true of the whole spiritual path. We begin the spiritual path because we are sick of suffering and we want to obtain happiness. Then something happens on a spiritual path and you begin to realize there's a big trick on the spiritual path and that is the less concerned you are about your own suffering and happiness, the more happiness you have and the less suffering you have. But this is something, a paradox, that you have to discover through your own practice. Then being committed to the precepts means that we continue practicing these precepts throughout the day as much as possible and the way we do that is to observe our own thoughts, our own speech and our own actions. We just start becoming mindful of them. What are we really doing in our lives, day-to-day, moment-to-moment? What are we really saying? What are we really thinking? And when we find ourselves acting selfishly, speaking selfishly, thinking selfishly, then we check that. This doesn't mean wiping it all out, we just check it in the moment and we make an inquiry. Why am I being selfish in this situation? What is this selfishness based on? And you'll almost always find it's based on some attachment motivated by desire or fear. And so we want to find out what is the attachment here? What am I attached to? What am I afraid of? So if I'm telling a lie, let's say, is it because uh, I'm afraid uh, that people will think I'm incompetent? Let's say you've screwed up a piece of work and you're denying it. Are you telling a lie, bragging about something, exaggerating something because you want to enhance the sense of self? You want people to uh, respect you and admire you and think you're a wonderful person? It's a a very dispassionate inquiry here. This is not about self-blame or anything. It's really about finding out what is motivating your actions throughout the course of the day. Once we do that, we can then apply the principle of detachment. And detachment really means seeing that that attachment is the cause of suffering. I'm going to illustrate this a little bit later in the talk, so I won't go into it now, how that works. But really focusing in on that attachment and then focusing in on the consequences of holding on to that attachment. And what would happen if you then let that attachment go? And that leads to the final principle, of surrender, which is really the flip side of detachment. The they're hard to separate these out. Once you actually start to see this attachment is causing my suffering, then you start to surrender. You just let it go. Uh, the analogy I like to use for this situation is someone holding a hot coal. They're holding a hot coal and they come to you and they say, oh, I've got such pain in my hand. <laughs> and they don't realize that the pain is caused because they're holding a hot coal. And if they come to you and ask you for help, your job is to make them make the connection. The pain is coming from holding the hot coal. They have to see that for themselves. Once you see, oh my gosh, it's this hot coal that's causing the pain, it doesn't take any big deal to let it go. It's not a great heroic act of surrender. It's not a, some act of martyrdom or anything. It's, huh, you let it go. You surrender it, drop it. And then... Once you're able to let go of an attachment, once you're able to surrender an attachment, once you're able to surrender the motivation for this selfish action, then you can substitute selfless action that comes from love and compassion. And you have a new way of acting in the world, a new way of being in the world. Practicing precepts does not involve, and this is very important, it does not involve becoming self-judgmental. If you start practicing precepts, and most of you who do will find you are uh, more selfish than you ever realized. This is very common. And then people start saying, oh my gosh, how terrible, I'm just such a horrible person, I'm so wicked, da-da-da-da-da. It's totally useless from a spiritual point of view to go through that. If you've done something wrong and hurt somebody, a little contrition apology is very helpful. Asking for forgiveness, and by the same token, forgiving others, and so forth. But dwelling on your guilt, your wickedness, and all that, starts to become very egocentric. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. Oh, I've hurt all these people. I'm the cause of so much suffering in the world. You just watch how those thoughts work. It's a negative kind of egotism. There's nothing but I in there. I, 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 I. So if you find yourself falling to self-judgment and so forth, just drop it. The second thing it isn't is trying to live up to some ideal, to become a saint. You can change your behavior and you can fake your emotions and you can do a lot of repression and you might actually create some facade of a saint. And you might even fool other people for a while. Eventually you won't. You know, there's nothing more obnoxious than a self-righteous person. And eventually, because it, this hasn't been a true transformation in your life, it's been a kind of a manufactured thing, it'll fall apart, cracks will show, and you will be miserable. You'll be sitting there smiling while people are insulting you. See, you know, I'm such a saint. I'm immune to this. They can insult me and it won't get to me. <laughs> and then you might be one of these people who ends up you know, going to the park and shooting people after a while. It's not about repressing and it's not about trying to live up to some ideal. And I think the best way to look at precepts is an experiment, like a scientific experiment that you're going to perform in your own laboratory, which is yourself, your life. What would happen if I tried to cut lying out of my life? Hmm, interesting question. And so then you observe, you see when you are lying, you note that, oh, okay. Then the next time it happens, the next time a situation comes up, a similar situation, uh, you try not to tell a lie. What would happen if you told the truth? It's through this kind of experimentation that you yourself become convinced that acting selfishly causes more suffering. And acting selflessly diminishes suffering and ultimately opens the way to happiness. And no one can convince you of that through preaching or teaching or reading or anything. (laughs) This is a deeply ingrained habit we have, this self-conditioning, and that's why it's called self-conditioning. It's a conditioned behavior. It's not volitional. It doesn't just come from our will. One of the first things that happens, you try to practice precepts and you see how difficult it is to break this conditioning. But you just keep observing, you just keep observing, you keep experimenting. You see for yourself. And in little ways, it's not just one big leap, little, but the little insights, little ways, you start to say, oh, this burden of self, this, oh, this self-concern I'm carrying around, this worry about self, this trying to protect self, all this is my suffering. And you're so relieved to get rid of it, to tr- be able to drop it, at least little bits of it, here and there and here and there. And you feel, oh, this, this is what the mystics are talking about. This is real joy. This is real freedom. This is real spontaneity. Practicing these precepts is far more profound than most people know when they begin. And the precepts themselves teach you. And they reveal depths that you just can't possibly know unless you are yourself practicing, doing it. So this morning, I'm going to say a few words about some precepts. And during the course of this series, I'm going to say a few words about each of the precepts. But really, these are just sort of ways to prime the pump, to sort of direct your attention to a few little surface things to get you going if you wanted to do a precept practice. But it's only through actually doing the precepts yourselves, to doing this practice yourselves, that you really start to understand the precepts. So this morning, I'm going to talk about the first two precepts, which we might call foundational precepts, the precept of taking responsibility and self-discipline. We begin with a little dedication, I vow to practice these 10 selfless precepts. And that just sets in our minds a resolve to actually do this and not just pay lip service to them. One of the big problems uh, with a lot of religions, especially if you just grow up with a set of like the Ten Commandments or something like that, oh yeah, they sound great, you pay lip service, good idea, but you don't actually do anything with it, you don't practice it, so it doesn't really do you any good. So just that little dedication is resolved, no, I'm really gonna try this, I'm really gonna see what would happen in my life if I really tried to do these precepts. So the first precept is responsibility to take responsibility for my life, not to blame others for my own unhappiness, nor make excuses for my own mistakes. Now, this embodies a crucial spiritual insight that our suffering is self-generated. Ultimately, all our suffering is self-generated. From a mystic's point of view this is a fundamental truth and it's quite different the way other people look at their suffering. If you practice the precepts you're going to be testing this, you don't just take it on faith and you're going to see for yourself, but all mystics have said this, East or West. The Western traditions put it, I think the most beautifully and simply, as you sow, so shall you reap. That's the scripture of both Jews and Christians that comes from the Old Testament. As you sow, so shall you reap. In uh, Islam, there's a wonderful little, uh, uh, I don't know if it comes from the Quran or it's a hadith, a story about uh, Iblis, who's Satan. And the story goes that when the judgment day comes, uh, the evildoers will all point to Satan and blame Satan. Satan led me astray, Satan did this and so forth. And Satan himself will stand up and say, Oh no, oh no, I lied to you. And you knew I was lying to you. But you listened to me. So don't blame me. Blame yourselves. And it's not true that in uh, any of the Abrahamic traditions that God punishes us. God judges the truth of our lives. But we punish ourselves. Our own deeds punish us. It's not the God, some vindictive father up there. But when the resurrection day, the judgment day, or however it's put comes, the truth is just made manifest. And that's all God as judge does, oversees that. Now, this is a mythic way of putting it. You don't necessarily have to believe in a judgment day and so forth. But the the import of the teaching here is that when things become clear, when we see things clearly, we see that we ourselves put ourselves in heaven or hell. It's self-generated. In the Eastern traditions, it's we make our own karma. We ourselves are responsible for our karma. No one else is responsible for our karma. And our karma is simply what we've thought said and done in the past sets up this conditioning of self which generates suffering and we keep acting out of that conditioning we keep creating this karma but at any moment we are actually free to start breaking this so this is not a a, a hard and fast mechanism it's not the way materialists view the world so that makes us responsible Here's what uh, Jamgang Kanchrold, a great Tibetan Buddhist teacher, says. Whether you are physically ill, troubled in your mind, insulted by others, or bothered by enemies and disputes, in short, whatever annoyance, major or minor, comes up in your life or affairs, do not lay the blame on anything else, thinking that such and such caused this or that problem. Rather, you should consider... This mind grasps at a self where there is no self. From time without beginning, it has, in following its own whims, perpetrated non-virtuous actions. All the sufferings I now experience are the result of those actions. No one else is to blame. This ego-cherishing attitude is to blame. I shall do whatever I can to subdue it very clearly, succinctly put. Now, a lot of people are disturbed by this teaching. Don't like this teaching, in fact. But this teaching is good news. Truly, it is good news. It's good news because it means suffering is not inherent in our external circumstances. It arises within us as a response to those circumstances which is what responsibility means <clears throat> so you can just examine your own life and you can see how this is true I'll give you two examples one a little example because all these principles operate at the most mundane levels and also the most profound levels the most seemingly inconsequential little details of our lives and the great big dramatic moments of our lives the same principles work all the way through Jennifer and I have a different attitudes towards tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer grows tomatoes. She loves to grow tomatoes. And in the summer, at the end of the summer, way at the end of the summer this year, we get these beautiful vine-grown tomatoes, fresh picked. I mean, they make that tomato in the supermarket taste like some other kind of fruit. (laughs) They are fruit, actually. Now, I get this tomato... And I bite into this tomato. I have it on a sandwich. I chop it up in my salad. This tomato gives me tremendous joy. I love this tomato. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer takes the same tomato and puts it in her mouth. And, ugh, it's slimy. And it has particularly this, it's the the texture of it mostly you don't like. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. She She likes it now in sauces when it's all, you know, ground up and cooked down. But that raw, fresh, right off the vine tomato, which is so wonderful to me, is oughy to her. So where is the suffering? Is it in the tomato? Or is it my response as opposed to her response? The suffering arises in us. It's not in the tomato. Is everybody following this? This is a simple little everyday thing But in more dramatic situations, the same principle applies. And a good example uh, of this that I thought of, if most of us run across a beggar, a homeless person, a transient, lying in the street, covered in excrement and vomit, with sores and worms, eating them and so forth, our reaction, our response is revulsion. And the last thing we would want to do is go pick that person up and carry them someplace. And if we brought ourselves to do that, you know, we'd be doing it like this. We would be feeling suffering, even though we knew it was the right thing to do. We'd be feeling suffering. We have a video in our library about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And in the video, there's a story about one of her sisters of charity, Uh, the vitiate was just starting who went out on the streets of Calcutta on her first day and did just that she picked up beggars covered with vomit, excrement and so forth and she carried them into their ambulance and they take them off to their home and she came back at the end of the day and she told Mother Teresa she was radiant and glowing she said, Mother, I've been touching the body of Jesus all day for her, the same experience, the same situation was a source of great joy. A spiritual experience of the highest order. Now, watch your minds now. No self-judgment in there. What your mind, yeah, you see, that's what I was talking about before. It's just to illustrate a point. The suffering is not in the situation, it's in our response and those yogis that sit on those big pile heaps of excrement in India too that's right and I have no idea if they're sitting there like this pretending for the tourists or if they really are enjoying it but this is the point you yourself is the only one who can judge this you yourself is the only one who knows but the principle here is it's not in the situations in ourselves that's what we always want to look for now this is good news because if this were not the case there'd be no possibility of really ending our suffering we'd be at the mercy of circumstances but this is why mystics say despite the way things seem we can really bring an end to suffering because it's in ourselves we are not at the mercy of circumstances so this is very good news indeed This is why the precept of responsibility, taking responsibility for your life is so important. This is why I call it one of the foundational precepts. All the other precepts really are built on this. As long as we are blaming others, we cannot see that this is true as long as our minds are projecting the cause of the suffering out there on a situation or other people or whatever, then we are not looking inside for the true cause of suffering, the true source of it, and so we can't do anything to alleviate it. We can't do anything to get rid of it. So the first step then in taking responsibility for your life is to start paying attention particularly to your speech and your thoughts because that's where blaming occurs. You just watch your mind saying, "Oh, oh, so and so's fault." Da 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 da. If only that person da 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 da. And then watch your speech, and when you're gossiping with your friends, and you'll actually see the blaming occur quite vividly. It's not a big mystery about how it happens. <clears throat> For instance, if you uh, go to a restaurant. And the service is slow. <coughs> and you're in a rush. <coughs> you sit there, you know. And you're with a friend. You see, oh, the service is terrible in this place. This is, I, I've got to get back to work. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <coughs> this waitress, what's the matter with her? Oh, you're getting impatient, you're getting frustrated, you're getting stressed out, and you're blaming the waitress for stressing you out but your suffering is coming from inside. That distress is arising with you. That distress is not out there in the waitress. She's not, uh, you know, communicating like some social disease distress to you. You see what I'm talking about? Again, these are simple situations, but this is where our suffering arises. A colleague at work, you work with somebody that uh, rubs you the wrong way, annoys you, maybe they're rude, They're insulting, whatever it is. You watch your mind and you watch how you talk to other people. You blame them for your misery on the job. They may well be rude. This isn't about pretending people aren't rude or crude or whatever. But it's your response to them. That's where the misery is. So it's really watching your thoughts and your speech. That's the first step in taking responsibility for your life. And you see when blaming is arising. One of the favorite targets in this uh, culture of blaming is our upbringing. Especially if you've had a little uh, psychotherapy or if you read some psychology and so forth. And you you find out this is true. Things that happen to us when we're children set up patterns of behavior that carry into our adult life and especially if you've had abusive parents or something like that, something uh, traumatic happened to you, and it shapes our present responses. And it can be very helpful to see that, to see the patterns of our responses, and even to see where they came from. This is all to the good. But we can't stop there. And some people actually use that as an excuse for not changing. Because, you know, their neurotic responses are safe. That's why they develop them. They're a form of protection and we don't want to give up that protection. And I had a personal experience with this, not something from childhood, but I was in Vietnam. I'm a Vietnam veteran. And at the beginning of my spiritual path, all this stuff from Vietnam came back and I started to identify myself as a Vietnam veteran. and I had to go to Vietnam veteran groups And I started to fall into this trap. Oh, this is why I'm so miserable and unhappy, because I'm so different from all these other people. They can't know what I experienced in Vietnam. I have a right to be miserable and unhappy because of what was done to me, what I was put through. Very dangerous trap. Fortunately, I got out of it. So anything you can see about your behavior, the patterns and so forth, are going to be helpful because that means that they're in the light of consciousness. But you are still responsible for interrupting those patterns. And the way you break any pattern, any conditioning, is in the moment as it's occurring. You can't break it by going back in the past. That might be helpful to go back and relive a traumatic experience and see that, oh, well, actually, even though you had all this fear, you allow yourself to experience the fear and the sky doesn't fall down. That can be very helpful. But right there in the moment when you're about to respond to some situation out of fear, That's when you can break that conditioning. And you have to be able to see it. That's why attention is so important. Ah, here I am about to do the same old thing. What would happen if I didn't do the same old thing? Ah, hold your breath and don't do it. It's wonderful. This is the beginning of freedom from conditioning. Then you check that behavior. Then you look for the attachment. Whenever you find your mind playing that blame game, just stop it. It's conditioned and it won't mean that it will stop forever. Just stop for that one moment. It'll come back again and again. But in that one moment you have to have a clear mind to see what's going on. So you see your mind doing, okay, just stop it for a moment. Stop it and look at the situation. Look for the attachment that's based on some desire or some fear. And you really want to try to see what is what's the specific attachment in this situation in interpersonal relations, which is a large source of suffering in our society most of the time the attachment is to some mental image of yourself. Uh, I give two examples from my life one i've uh, talk to, uh, excuse me, I've talked about before on my spiritual path I began to discover I was very attached to the image of myself as being a very smart person very quick and bright and coming up with bright ideas so in a meeting, let's say a business meeting or something if someone said, oh that's a stupid idea, I'd get very defensive and i get into arguments and get very combative and so forth I never bothered to stop and think, well, is this really a stupid idea? I mean, (laughs) the instinct is to respond, to defend this image, right? And that was part of my spiritual practice, and it was very effective. I began to watch this, and I began to see, this is an image I have of myself. I have to be smart or write all the time. Why? It's literally imaginary. And the more I could see that, I could see it in the moment. I'd start to respond this way, and I'd stop And then I began to see, well, some of my ideas weren't so great. So what? Okay. So somebody said, stupid idea. I said, yeah, you know, you're right. That's not a very good idea. Who cares? What am I defending here? I thought of another example, uh, because uh, this one's a little bit more subtle, and this happens to us on a spiritual path. When I was taking my video trip around these various spiritual communities, I had... Resolved to make this video purely as a service to these communities each community got to have a 10-minute slot on this videotape They could put whatever they wanted on it I was just going to be the cameraman and film it and at the end I was going to send a copy of the full videotape around to all the communities so that each community could see what the other Communities were doing and I wasn't going to enter into it And I certainly wasn't going to sell it and I didn't charge any money for it and this is a total service And I remember being at one community and this woman asked me something like, what are you getting out of this? And I said, oh, nothing. It's just a service. And she said, you, that's not true. You're going to sell this, aren't you? I got very upset. (laughs) I had this image of myself of being selfless service. And this is the way I presented myself to these communities. And so when she challenged that, even though it wasn't true, when she challenged that, I got all upset and unhappy and started suffering and had felt I had to defend myself. An image. Even you see a spiritual image of yourself. That's what I'm trying to point out. It doesn't matter. It's still an image. Literally imaginary. So much of our suffering comes from hanging on to things that are literally imaginary. Imaginary in the crudest sense, meaning they are purely images in our minds of who we are and how we want people to respond. And when they don't respond according to the image, then we suffer. And it's very simple. Let go of the image. Recognize, first, what's going on, second, that it is an image, and then drop it. It's like... uh, Having a target that people are shooting arrows at and as long as the targets there when the arrows hit they stick you remove the target and the arrows fly through and that's what happens when you let go of these self images you have of yourself and then someone can't insult you if you don't if you don't have a big image of yourself as being smart and someone says yeah that's stupid okay The arrow goes through. There's no target there for it to hit. So watch particularly suffering that comes from self-images that you're hanging on to, that you're attached to. Very good place to begin looking in this practice. Blaming others is a deeply ingrained habit deeply ingrained habit don't expect to break it overnight it is not a question of willpower it's not a question of volition willpower and volition comes into uh, being willing to look at what's going on so don't get in a big battle with your mind your mind just doing what it's been trained to do conditioned to do but if you just check it see what is the cause you go through this process over and over and over When you see that that image, in that case, is imaginary, when you see what's going on, all that conditioning just starts to lose its power. It'll still be there, but it starts to lose its power. And ultimately, you can just let it go. It'll just drop away spontaneously. When you do this practice, and when you get into this practice, and when you develop the mindfulness To be able to watch conditioning, to be able to watch how this response arises, to be able to see the attachment under it, and then to drop the conditioning, to drop your conditioned response, you start to see there's a space of awareness or consciousness that is witnessing all this. That even though suffering may still be going on in the situation, in your response, in the moment, there's no suffering in the space of witnessing. And the weaker that conditioning becomes, the more pieces drop away, the more you see that that space, that dimension, is the place from which love and compassion spontaneously manifest. You don't have to do a lot of work generating love and compassion. You just have to get rid of the obstacles when they fall away, when the attention is not totally self-absorbed in protecting the self, enhancing the self, worrying about the self, what's going to happen to this poor me? When that attention is liberated, freed, it naturally flows out. It sees other people, other beings. It sees their situation. It doesn't pity them. It sees, oh, you're like me. We're all peas in the same pod. You're suffering too. I know suffering. I've been studying suffering here for six months doing these precepts. I know suffering very well. Your heart naturally flows out to them with sympathy, with compassion. That's where this precept can lead and that's why it's so important and so profound. The second precept, self-discipline, is a little bit more... Straightforward, I think. To regard each moment as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Not to waste time in frivolous pursuits, nor overindulge in drugs, alcohol, or escapist entertainments. Now, this precept has two parts. The first part, to regard each moment as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice, reminds us, first of all, of the preciousness of human life in general. And in all mystical traditions, human life is extraordinarily precious. In the Eastern traditions, uh, human birth is very rare. They they believe in reincarnation, but you you go born in hell realms, god realms, uh, hungry ghost realms, animal realms, all sorts of realms. To end up as a human being is very rare. In fact, I once heard a Tibetan uh, Buddhist describe it as It's like throwing one of those life preservers, those round things they carry on boats, out into the middle of the ocean and having a sea turtle happen to pop up in it. That's about your chances. What? A blind sea turtle coming oh, up every 1,000 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the whole earth is water. There's actually no land. <laughs> there you go. You can do more refinements on it. That's, that's how precious this opportunity is, right? So we should take advantage of it. Uh, Shanti Devi, a great Buddhist teacher, says, By depending upon this boat-like human body, you can cross the great ocean of suffering. In the future, such a vessel will be hard to find. This is no time to sleep, you fool. (laughs) And it's true. Our lives are very precious from mystics' point of view, extraordinarily precious. In the Western traditions, of course, you only get to go around once. I mean, that sea turtle pops up, and that's it. You've got to wait another thousand years. So uh, again, this is our, uh, our season to wake up, our time to wake up. And it's not only that our life is precious as a whole, being human beings, it's that every moment of our life is an opportunity for spiritual practice good or bad, whether you like it or dislike it, whether uh, lots of exciting things are going on, whether nothing's going on, whether you're healthy or ill, wealthy or poor, it's like the marriage vows, you know, in sickness and in health, for better and worse and all that. It's all grist for your mill if you will bring attention to bear on it, if you will bring mindfulness to bear on it. Every little thing that happens can be a spiritual opportunity, an opportunity for insight. This is why Rumi, great uh, Sufi poet, says, each and every part of the world is a snare for the fool and a means of deliverance for the wise. Our problem is uh, really that we have an embarrassment of riches. We have so much opportunity to practice, it's hard to know where to begin. (laughs) This is why, uh, you know, some people go off and become monks and nuns and stuff. It's to sort of, you know, pare this down. It's just overwhelming the richness. But it is true. Everything that's happening is an opportunity. The next part of the precept is not to waste time. That follows from the first. If this is a precious opportunity, then we shouldn't be wasting our time here. And from a practical point of view, when you're doing formal practices on a spiritual path, reading, meditating, attending teachings like this, these all take time. So if you're spending a lot of your life in frivolous pursuits, you don't have as much time to do formal practice. Way to combine frivolous pursuits with practice. There is, there is actually. It'll take away your enjoyment of the frivolous pursuit, but there is. Won't be frivolous anymore. Uh, so the more time you spend watching TV, going to parties, and that sort of thing, less time you have for practice. But more importantly, and this is taking frivolous pursuits as a opportunity for practice. When we curtail our frivolous pursuits, we then can see the motive for engaging in them. So it's not about just cutting frivolous pursuits out of your life. You watch what's going on when you're engaged in frivolous pursuits. And most of our frivolous pursuits, it's very interesting, we engage in them to lose our sense of self. If you ask people why they go to movies, why they watch TV, why they go to sporting events, most of them will say, oh, so I can forget about my life. I forget about my problems. I don't have any sense of being a self. When we go out bowling or dancing or whatever, it's to lose our sense of self for a little while. Because we know intuitively self is suffering. As long as we feel like we are trapped in this individual entity, ego, self. We are separated and cut off from the rest of the world. That in itself, before we do anything else, is suffering. That is already existential loneliness. That is already fear of death. Because each we know every entity form is born and dies. So most people, they work hard all day, they have all these struggles and stuff, and whenever they get a spare moment, what they think of as fun is to go out and lose themselves. And it's true. Except for the trouble with losing yourself in frivolous pursuits is two things. One, it does not last. So it's a temporary solution. For a little while, you're relieved of having this burden of sense of self. But more Uh, more importantly or more profoundly the problem with it is the way frivolous pursuits alleviate our burden of the sense of self is by distracting our attention by wrapping our attention up in something else so thoroughly that we forget that we think we are individual entities but when attention is distracted there's no opportunity for insight if you watch what's happening, when you are engaged in a frivolous pursuit, then your sense of self will come back. When you stop that, your sense of self will come to the fore very strongly. So for instance, let's say you come home and you sit down and you're just going to turn on some TV. you just feel a little looky and you just want to veg out and you just want to turn on the TV. And then instead of turning on the TV, you don't. You just sit there on the couch. Oh, all the reasons that you're going to turn on the TV will come to the fore. Your you're boredom, your distress, are thinking about uh, work problems or whatever is all going to come to the fore. Now this is opportunity. Now you can see what is the attachment in here that is causing the suffering that I'm so anxious to get away from this whole mess, right? So instead of turning away from it, you go into it, you face it, you look into it you have that attention available which you don't have when you're lost in some TV show. Uh, you can experiment with frivolous pursuits. It's a very interesting thing to be in the middle of a TV show that you're really wrapped up in and turn off the sound. <laughs> really. Again, you'll you you'd be amazed. You see something totally imaginary is wrapping you up. I mean, there are these little <laughs> electrons hitting a screen, creating these little patterns and there are these sound vibrations coming out of a little box. I always... Like to think what well, aliens would think coming from another planet, another solar system, come down in, uh, around prime time, you know, between <laughs> seven and nine o'clock. And these human beings are sitting in front of this box, worshiping this Transfixed by, <laughs> yes, by lights and, and vibrations. They're just, uh, uh. <laughs> This is a key. We can never escape our suffering through running away. We must find out what is the cause of it. We must get to the bottom of our suffering to be liberated from it. In the Buddhist tradition, suffering is called dukkha. That's the Pali word, I think, same in Sanskrit as well. Here's what Walpola Rahula, a Buddhist teacher, says. And this is very important. We must clearly and carefully mark and remember that the cause the germ of the arising of Dukkha is within Dukkha itself and not outside. And we must equally well remember that the cause, the germ of the cessation of Dukkha, of the destruction of Dukkha, is also within Dukkha itself and not outside. Running off to Nirvana, to heaven, to uh, samadhis and so forth are not the answer. It's to really look into your suffering to see what is the cause of your suffering, to see that it is self-generated, but very specifically, what is the attachment? What are you holding on to? What are you trying to protect? When you see that clearly, then there's the possibility of letting it go. Then that hot coal is just spontaneously surrendered and released. And that is the practice And that is why working with precepts is so powerful. In many ways more powerful than doing meditation and other kinds of things which are confined to limited periods of the day. Working with precepts you can do all the time. Working with precepts means you convert your whole life into the spiritual path. It's not like you do your spiritual practice over here and then you go bowling tonight. You carry your spiritual practice into the bowling and it improves your score. <laughs> uh, actually, yes, but if you think of it that way, it'll backfire on you. When you are free of any self-concern, it will improve your score. You won't be nervous. I'll, I won't tell you the bowling story now. I have a bowling story. <laughs> Let's finish this up quickly. Here. Just a few more things to say. The last part of the precept is not to overindulge in drugs, alcohol, escapist, entertainment. So, pick three things that are common in our culture other things could be for you frivolous pursuits as well these are sort of examples so you have to uh, look at your life and figure out what is a frivolous pursuit for you but then the question is what about overindulgence what is overindulgence how much is too much well this goes back to responsibility taking responsibility for your life you have to decide this These precepts are precepts designed to be practiced in everyday life. They're not about completely abandoning ordinary social activities and setting yourself apart from the normal flow of society. There are monastic vows that do that. And those of you who have that card, if you flip it over, you'll see on the back of it monastic vows that we at the center take when we go on retreat for the duration of the retreat monastic vows are much more restrictive they are designed to cut out a lot of these distractions so you can really focus more sharply and clearly on simple things in your life and they are very valuable they certainly have their place and for different people it could be for just the duration of a retreat some people uh, take them for extended periods of time some people take them for life But the precepts, the ten selfless precepts that we practice are not monastic precepts. They're not designed to do that. They're designed for people who live in an ordinary way, among ordinary people, engage in ordinary social activities. Overindulgence will be different for different people. So you have to look at your life and decide. And I think most of you won't have too much trouble actually deciding. I'll just leave you with a few little clues. Or helpful hints, let's put it that way. For instance, if you come home at the end of the day, as I said before, and you feeling wiped out and, blah, and you just turn on the TV, you don't know what's on, and you start channel surfing just to find the least of the you know track and settle on that just to veg out, that is probably a frivolous pursuit. That's quite different than uh, knowing that I don't know on PBS there's going to be a production of Othello or something which you read in the paper and so you plan Friday night to watch. One of the things you can look at is the compulsiveness with which you do things. If You find there's a lot of compulsiveness in there that's probably a frivolous pursuit. Again, it's like coming home from a hard day's work and having three martinis and crashing. That's quite different than having a wonderful glass of wine with a meal, do you know what I mean, and appreciating it and so forth. If you, uh, maybe you're someone who eats compulsively because of psychological distress. You find yourself every time you're getting stressed out, you have to run out and get a snack or a candy bar or something like that. Look at the compulsiveness of the behavior. That's usually a very good clue that you're overindulging. And then you can also look at things like the time you spend it and the value you get out of it. If you're spending, you know, three hours a night watching TV, how is this helping you on a spiritual path? How is this helping you make the best use of this precious, precious opportunity we have as human beings? If you practice these two precepts or any of these ten precepts or all of these ten precepts, They will literally transform your life. We talk a lot about transforming our life and transformative things and all that. Transforming our lives means transforming them at the most nitty-gritty level. All the talk in the world about transforming your life and so forth is worthless if it isn't actually transforming your life. (laughs) Working with precepts works, if you like, from the inside out. And I, by the way, always advise people working with precepts to take something small to begin working with. Don't start biting off some big problem in your life. Look at some little thing. And you want to see how that stitch in your karma is woven. How that uh, stitch in your conditioning is put together. You first just want to see it. Then you want to see how it works. You want to be in a big rush to get rid of it. You have to understand that that's what insight is. And when you see how it works, you will already have begun to know how the whole thing works. You start with the little things, you know them, you get to know them thoroughly. And then the bigger causes of suffering in your life work on the same principle and it becomes easier and easier. I guess the point we just look at something, you see the attachment there and it falls away. And then it's not something you have to do to transform your life. It is that process itself that begins to transform your life. And you will look back on your life six months later and you'll say, oh, my life is different. And you'll look back a year later or five years later and you will be amazed at how different your life is without your setting out to become something else, do something else or anything. It's just clearing the way, getting rid of those stains, clearing off that rust. And that, as uh, Al-Ghazali said, that light of God itself flowing through transforms you. So that's my talk for the morning. Oh. Thank you. <clears throat> Are there any questions or comments? <clears throat> yes? I'm just curious, Gerald, that overindulge, you talked about that a lot, and the, the overindulge is the only worry in all these precepts that seems like a qualified uh, precept. Uh, and I'm wondering whether the qualification not to overindulge is, is a tacit admission of, of human weakness or is it an acceptance that some indulgence is desirable or at least okay uh it's not a question is is it desirable or at least okay and it's not a it's not a concession to human weakness although you may look at it as a concession uh in your own case you know that you're not ready to uh, give up tv so you may say well i'm going to cut down my TV to to three hours a night instead of four hours a night. You see, that'd be a good beginning for somebody who watches four hours a night. So in that sense, it's practical. But the point about not to overindulge in as, as a part of the precept is so that you continue to live your life as a layperson, a householder with other householders and you don't show up at someone's house and you've taken a vow not to watch TV, do you know what I mean? And that's what's on the program for the evening and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I've taken a vow not to watch TV and I have to leave after dinner," you know what I mean? So it's, it's a way to alert you to the fact that it's not so much what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. So if you even had taken a vow not to watch any more TV or only an hour's worth of TV and you went over to your family's house on Thanksgiving and they're all watching football, then watch football mindfully. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, it, it was just curious to me that that, is, that was the only word in all of these precepts that's a, that's, a, that's a qualifier. Everything else is... And this one says, well, you know, little drugs, little alcohol, little oh, escapists. <laughs> let me say this. You should determine... What is overindulgence? And then you should be strict with that, especially in the beginning of practicing with them. So let's just take the example of TV. You're right. If you treat it that way, every time you sit down to watch and say, well, it's a little overindulgence, who cares? But if you look at your life and you decide, okay, I'm only going to watch an hour's worth of TV a day, then you should really be strict with that. Then, if there's a production of Othello on PBS, you know, once in that time, you decide you're going to break it for that purpose to see Othello. But you don't drift with it. You don't sit down and say, well, I'm a little extra tired tonight. I think I'll just watch two hours. Later. So you can, you can make this yourself very strict. To find it custom. custom. Yeah. Isn't, uh, <clears throat> we're talking about a practice here. Watching television mindlessly or movies or uh, you know, being on the internet, isn't that really a practice also that's working just in the opposite direction to what we're talking about? I once gave a talk on the practice of suffering. We don't realize it, but we think there's spiritual practice and then there's just life. But when you are not doing spiritual practice, you are practicing suffering. You are literally practicing suffering. I might give that talk again someday. I don't think it's recorded. <laughs> Uh, But it's true. Everything we do in life comes from a holy root. And that root is a desire to be happy, which is truly spiritual. And it reflects an intuition that happiness is possible, despite how the world sometimes appears, that happiness is possible. And we constantly are acting on that assumption. And that root desire if you like, is a sacred desire. The problem is that because of our ignorance, that desire is channeled in directions that will just create more suffering for us. And what a spiritual path aims to do is to cut through that conditioning that builds up over time and allow us to see, to have insight, which dispels the ignorance and frees that conditioning and then ultimately you see there's another paradox here the desire to become happy is already carrying us away from the source of happiness because it's also predicated on the ignorance the delusion that we are not happy and when we finally see through that delusion and and dispel that ignorance then we are happy we discover that inherent happiness that we always had but it certainly All our life is a practice, whether we know it or not. Any other questions or comments? Well, then let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to hang out and have some tea. Check out the library and chat. Until we see you again, peace to you all.